Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Tonight on this special edition of 60 Minutes Presents... Eat, drink, and be merry. Over the years, I've kind of perfected it, made it easier to cook. Ina Garten, also known as the Barefoot Contessa, is a best-selling author with impressive culinary chops. You can use canned base stock. She told us she wants to help people relax in their kitchens while following her recipe for a good life. Julia sold French food, right? Martha sold perfection. You're slinging fun. (laughs) Well, I just think if you're not having fun, what's the point, really? (laughs) In a changing Britain, nostalgia can reside at the bottom of a glass. In the oh-so-English village of Aldworth in Berkshire, you'll find just a cricket green, a church, a few houses, and a pub resistant to time. The Bell Inn has been in the family of Heather Macaulay for 200 years. We've talked to some pub owners who've said they they felt this pressure to evolve and they're trying gourmet food and DJs and technology. Well, I don't even have a mobile phone. Take a listen, as we did, to Sona Jobarte as she plays the Cora. its 21 strings played by just four fingers, two on each hand, it has a sound both foreign and familiar. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. 
Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Good evening, I'm John Wertheim. Welcome to 60 Minutes Presents. In this season of celebration, we have three stories that offer opportunities to eat, drink, and be merry. We'll enjoy a pint or two in the storied pubs of England and be entertained by a virtuoso of an African instrument seldom heard on this continent. But we begin tonight's menu with a visit with Ina Garten, one of the most beloved cooks in the country, known as the Barefoot Contessa. Her cookbooks have sold millions of copies. Her weekly television show has run for two decades, earned seven Emmys, three James Beard Awards, and millions of devoted fans who tune in as much for the cooking lesson as the cocktail party that typically follows. And when Sharon Alfonsi first met her in October, we learned that Ina Garten isn't quite as freewheeling as you might think. As impressive as her culinary chops may be, Ina Garten's success hinges on hard work, shrewd business sense, and leaving nothing to chance. This is just a great weeknight meal. It's so easy to do. You do the first stage, have yourself a glass of wine, do the second stage, and dinner's ready. Whether she's whipping up one of her signature chicken dishes, slinging Cosmos for her real-life friends, or scooping ice cream, Ina Garden is a calming presence in the kitchen, taking the mystery out of cooking. Now, how easy is that? She's built a culinary empire by making it all look effortless. I know people don't believe this, but I'm really a nervous cook, and I'm sure every recipe is going to turn out wrong. So I'm incredibly precise. Even now? Even now. I'm there with a cookbook going, is it a half a teaspoon or a whole teaspoon? Are you really? I follow my own recipes exactly, because I've spent so much time getting the balance of flavors and textures and everything right. I'm really not a confident cook. I would think that you were like, you know, swigging wine and yeah. tossing <laughs> an herb. Let's keep yeah. that image going. Yeah. How's that? <laughs> so this is my commute to work. Oh, <laughs> awful for you. I know. At 74, the image of Ina Garten with her denim shirt, chic scarves, and signature bob is as reliable as the tried-and-true recipes she's built her reputation on. Those recipes are a roadmap for home cooks from a home cook. People like Bobby Flay have worked in restaurant kitchens all his life and he can just throw things together i've you know i've watched him he's such a brilliant cook yeah. i'm not that that person i didn't have that experience when you say you're testing and testing yourself at first mm-hmm. and how many times do you have to make something before you I get mean, it sometimes right? 10 times sometimes 25 times really? and then i'll print out a page and give it to one of my assistants and watch them make it and you it so surprises me what people do I was making lentil salad, warm French lentils, and um, she was putting in garlic in it. I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, it said cloves. 
a cloves of garlic in it. And I was like, no, it's cloves, oh. not cloves of garlic. And I thought, I never would have made that mistake, but somebody else at home is going to make that mistake. So I just want you to feel like I'm right there beside you, just kind of guiding you through the recipe. So this is the secret garden. Oh, don't tell anybody about it. <laughs> garden has been guiding viewers from her home in East Hampton, New York, for 20 years. I love these tomatoes. Do you really do the gardening? Well, I point. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> yes. It may seem like she grew out of the rich Long Island soil. She did not. Born in Brooklyn, New York, Ina Rosenberg grew up in Stamford, Connecticut. Her dad was a doctor, her mom a dietitian. As a teenager, she was instructed to stay out of the kitchen and excel in school. She did both. She met her future husband, Jeffrey Garden, while she was 16 years old, and four years later, they were married. Jeffrey, a lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne, later took her backpacking through France. She came home with an ambitious mission. So I got Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking, and I just worked my way through those books, which were very complicated recipes. I mean, there were ingredients in each recipe that was another recipe in itself. Right. And I loved that challenge. You never went to cooking school? Never went to cooking school. Was Julia Child's book your cooking school? Julia Child was my cooking school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Her actual degree was in economics. At 26, she had a job at the White House analyzing nuclear energy policy for the Ford administration. Jeffrey worked around the corner at the State Department. Each weekend, Ina says, they devote their time to less bureaucratic pursuits, like making a great dinner party look simple. To this day, I, I follow this. I never made something for a dinner party. I hadn't made several times. Mm. So I would, on Monday, I would make the roast leg of lamb with tomatoes with duxelle, which are minced, finely minced mushrooms, for Jeffrey for dinner. Lucky <laughs> and man. And then I'd make it again on Wednesday. And then by Saturday, I knew how to make it. And, and the poor guy would go, oh, this is delicious. What is this? <laughs> After a 1,000 dinner parties and two administrations, at 30 years old, Ina had burned out of life inside the Beltway. In 1978, she saw this ad in the back of the New York Times for a 400-square-foot specialty food store in West Hampton, New York, called the Barefoot Contessa. But you had never been to the Hamptons. I'd never You didn't been. know anything about running a store. I knew how to make 12 brownies for my friends, but I certainly didn't know how to make 100 brownies. Um, I didn't even know how to cash out the register or slice smoked salmon or, I mean, to me, brie was like a foreign language. Yeah. <laughs> so was it confidence that allowed I you to do that or was it that you were being naive? I have a very low threshold of boredom mm -hmm. and I was really bored with my job. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, this is really exciting. This is what I do for fun and now I can do it professionally. And so I just thought, I'm just going to jump in, thinking, well, how hard could this be? Oh, my God. It was really hard. The Gardens say they double mortgaged their house. Ina told us she was working 20 hours a day to keep up with the crowds who came to gawk at the goods and load up on lobster salad. Soon, she opened a bigger shop in East Hampton. It's very deliberate. I was always doing research. Mm -hmm. You know, it looked like I was just having a good time with, you know, wandering around having a party, mm -hmm. but um, it was all careful and deliberate. A calculating <laughs> businesswoman, Ina Garden, elevated the food scene and soon had Finicky Hampton's clientele falling over themselves to have the Barefoot Contessa cater their weddings or Thanksgiving. And every year we would pack up the orders Wednesday night so people could come in Thursday morning. 
And I would use the van out, out next to the store as a refrigerator. And one year, it was like 33 degrees when I was going home, and I thought, nobody wants a frozen Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> so I drove the van home, <laughs> and I set my alarm for every single hour <laughs> all night to turn the heat on for a few minutes and then go back to sleep. <laughs> to keep the turkeys <laughs> to warm. To keep the turkeys. Well, the turkeys we roasted in the morning, but like the vegetables and the sides and all that stuff. After 18 years, Garden decided to sell the Barefoot Contessa in 1996. So, I mean, one minute I'm making a 1,000 baguettes and the next minute I have nothing to, I mean, nothing to do. How was that? It was horrible. And I thought, you know, I'm 50. Maybe that's the end of my career. Hardly. The lull lasted nine months before Garden started writing the Barefoot Contessa cookbook, the first of 13 cookbooks, 10 of which have become New York Times bestsellers, crushing big-name chefs by remembering the lessons learned at her specialty foods shop. I realized later what I knew was what people wanted to eat at home, mm-hmm. which was roast chicken and roast carrots mm-hmm. and chocolate cake and coconut cupcakes and things that I knew from the store people bought and took home. You weren't trying to say, here's everything I know. You were saying, here's what you need to know. Yeah, here's what will make you happy at home. Her latest cookbook, Go To Dinners, was inspired by the pandemic. And again, Ina is in every detail. One of the things about the book that is not by accident is that you can put it on the counter and it doesn't flop shut. I'm so glad you noticed that. Early on, Garten sought out a printer in Japan so her cookbooks would lie flat it wouldn't close while cooking. She designed them to have white space for notes and pictures as guides. Simplicity is a non-negotiable. Do you ever throw something out because it's too difficult to make? Absolutely. If I get to a point in a recipe and I go, I'm never going to make this recipe again, everything goes in the trash. <laughs> and if you're exhausted by the time you finish that, you're just, it's not good for the party. So you're thinking about the party above all things? I'm always thinking about the party. The party got real big real fast after Ina was invited to be on Martha Stewart's show. An outtake Mm. caught the eye of a Food Network executive. She said that I was making something and I took a spoonful of it and tasted it and go, this is really good. (laughs) (laughs) And and the Martha Stewart crew said, cut, you can't talk with your mouth full. And I was like, why? It's a cooking show. Garden told network executives she didn't want a show, but eventually gave in with a caveat. Instead of an adoring studio audience, she insisted on a more intimate affair in her kitchen. She directed the cameras to come closer, so it felt like a dinner party. One of the things I'm fascinated by is that there are a lot of people who watch your show who don't Don't cook. cook. What do you think the appeal is? Why are they watching you cook? I think there was a time when mom was in the kitchen cooking for us, and I think people feel like they're just hanging out with me and I'm cooking for them. Mm-hmm. When you're cooking, you're not, it's not about look at me. Oh, it's never about look at yeah. me. I'm like, don't look at me. <laughs> I'm just the opposite. <laughs> um, it's funny. I, I have a friend who said everybody else is like, look at me, look at me. I'm, you know, pay attention to me. And I'm like, um, <laughs> well, this is what I do. You can do whatever the f*** you want to do. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just having fun here. The fun came to a screeching halt for Ina and everyone else during the pandemic. Unable to film her show or cook for her friends, Garten turned to Instagram, offering practical advice to home cooks. It's really important to keep traditions alive. And stirring up some fun. You never know who's going to stop by. Wait a minute, nobody's stopping by. Two cups of vodka and more than three million views later. Delicious.
With the lockdown over, we wanted to make sure Ina didn't have to drink alone. If you do this, Jeffrey arrives. Hi, sweetie. Hi. <laughs> you know Sharon, right? I know Sharon. Hi, Sharon. Well, so we made a red grapefruit Paloma for you. Wow. How's that? Uh -oh. Mr. Garden had a successful career on Wall Street and served as the dean of Yale's business school. But millions of viewers know him simply as Jeffrey. Ina has called you her muse before. What is she to you? Well, she's the center of my life. Oh. <laughs> um, she's actually the font of enormous amount of fun. And she is the center of a home. That's what she is to me. Thank you. <laughs> That's not bad. Not the bad couple's been married for more than 50 years. Is this a typical this is... day at the house? Oh, yeah, we have cocktails all the time. <laughs> a couple of times a day. <laughs> And that's the secret to a happy marriage. <laughs> exactly right. Just delicious. Thank you. The next morning, we went looking for carbs. But in the Hamptons, the corner shop doesn't sell donuts. This is Carissa's. So cute. Isn't it wonderful? Garden took us to her favorite local bakery for a taste of the good life. What is it that you love about this spot? Well, first, I love Carissa's because it's two local women. And the two of them have built this extraordinary place with great quality food. It's, they use local ingredients on almost everything. And they're here every day. And it just feels like what I used to do. Feels like coming home. Oh, look how fabulous that is. Oh, wow. man, that is fancy potato. This is just what I would typically have for breakfast. <laughs> exactly. This is all lovely, but the bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich is like $20. A lobster roll is 38 But you know, first of all, it's organic, it's local, and things are expensive here. But it's not just a piece of white bread. It's on a roll that Carissa made. One of the luxuries of being here is that you can make a really good quality product. Garden's life isn't all French pastries and rose-colored cocktails, but we thought it's pretty dang close. She may still be a nervous cook, but Ina Garden has nailed the recipe for a good life. I don't want to do what I love doing, and I want to do it really well, yeah. and then I want to have a life. Julia sold French food, right? Martha sold perfection. You're slinging fun. <laughs> well, I just think if you're not having fun, what's the point, really? <laughs> Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then... There are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. We were nearing last call on the grandest of British institutions, the pub. After enduring for hundreds of years as centers for schmoozing and boozing, pubs were going the way of morning newspapers, afternoon tea, and the whole idea of empire. A range of factors undercut the kind of neighborhood joint where everyone knows your name. Then came COVID, which kept most British pubs closed for more than a year. 
But in the summer of 2021, the UK reopened, and not unlike an overserved patron, the pub story started to stagger and lurch in an unexpected direction. And as we first reported last year, maybe it's not quite closing time after all. 1,200 plus years old. Yes. A man walks into a pub. Of course he does. In this case, it's a very old pub. Ye old Fighting Cocks in St. Albans outside London. Its landlord, or publican, is Christo Tofali. So your pub is one of dozens in this country that claims to be the oldest ever. Yeah, absolutely make, make your case, right. make your case. It turns out there's a bit of a misconception which one's the oldest and what the oldest pub is. So we're the oldest pub. Uh, the first brick was laid in 793 and the oldest inhabited building in Europe. Vikings invaded England in the same year the first brick was laid in 793. I suspect Vikings would like this place. They would love this place. Before we go further, let's define our terms. We're not talking about mere bars or, for the love of God, sports bars. These are pubs, short for public houses. They exist as much for conviviality as for what's on tap cold lager, and to the shock of first-timers, warm ale. They've been cornerstones of the culture here for centuries. The writer-slash-comedian Al Murray believes the value proposition goes well beyond beer. It's a community place. It's a communitarian place in a way that sitting in your front room watching television just isn't. What is it about this culture that has such appeal to you? To sound sort of idealistic about it, princes and paupers are, are, are equally welcome in here. And given that Britain is such a, a class-ridden society, there are very few places where, you know, you stand at the bar and your, your money's as good as anyone else's. You sound like a pub romantic. I am completely romantic about the idea of pubs. Well, there is something genuinely beautiful about the idea of somewhere where anyone can go at any time and sit in a corner with, with their own thoughts and a drink, and it's a, it's a beautiful notion. You don't go to Turner's Old Star for quiet contemplation. One of the last of the so-called boozers in London's East End, it's the heartbeat of the proudly working-class community here. Put in a day of work, you work hard, you come in, and then you... Yeah, absolutely. You work hard all day, and then you kind of like... It's just like having a mental shower after a hard day's work, just to kind of wind down. It's like a real-life cheers, I guess, you know? They make you feel welcome. They make you feel welcome. They're family. They're family. Paul and Bernice Drew have run the Old Star for 17 years. They met across the street, got engaged here. They live upstairs. The pub is their living room. The regulars, their oldest friends. When you say regular, though, so, these are really regular. Oh, yeah, every day. Everybody, everyone from 0 to 90 enjoys this. So. There's a core of people, I suppose, 10, 15 people that come in every day, regardless, winter, summer, whenever. They all come up, have their couple of beers, have a laugh, chew the wag, as they say, and, you know, slag everyone off. They're always having a go at each other. I hear you say with a real pride, this is pr- proper pub. It is. Uh, it's my pub pub. That's what we call it, don't we? No, it's a pub pub. We call it a pub pub. For centuries, pubs have been as much salon as saloon, as they've taken a stool and watched history and myth unfold. In London Soho, the French house was where Bohemians would rub shoulders with resistance leaders. After Paris fell to the Nazis in 1940, Charles de Gaulle, in exile, is said to have written his famous speech to the French Free Forces here. 
A little further east on the River Thames, legend has it that the 17th century Judge Jeffreys would watch those he sentenced hang as he lunched and sipped ale at the prospect of Whitby. And then there's the cholera epidemic that gripped London in 1854, killing 550 people in two weeks. A local doctor, John Snow, figured out the problem. Contaminated water from a well was spreading the disease, and simply removing the handle from the pump effectively ended the epidemic. John Snow wasn't knighted, but he did receive what might be the next highest British honor. Christening a pub after someone is an exception. Many pub names read like drunken mad libs. Random adjective plus random noun, often an animal. The ape and apple. The snooty fox. The drunken duck. The black dog. For Pete Brown, Britain's leading writer on beer and pubs, these names offer a clue to every establishment's story. What's going on here? I mean, it's, it's become one of the quirky aspects of the British pub, but it, it starts off in a very practical way, which is that most of the population who went to pubs until recently were illiterate. So uh, it, you couldn't put a name sign up. You had to have a pictorial sign. So you, you'd, pick a pic, you'd pick a picture of something that had some resonance with people. But then some of the ones that you just mentioned, I think it's kind of the pub self-satirizing itself. And it's not just pub names that veer toward the colorful and eccentric. Just behind London's law courts, and then behind the bar, you'll find the owner, chef, and star performer of the Seven Stars pub, the talented Mrs. Roxy Beaujolais. Your husband is American. Yes. yes. How do you explain what you do to, to his family? Well, when I was first introduced to them about 30 years ago, his mother asked me what I did, and I said, I'm a publican. She said, what? And my husband dove in and said, no, 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 Mama, uh, uh, not a Republican, a public, a, a tavern keeper. So. But what, what is it about this job that clearly feeds something in you? I'm good at it, darling. I mean... <laughs> You know, I cook, I, you know, I have a passing interest in the product that I sell myself. You know, I love it. For the last Thanks. 25 years, Cheers, good health. comedian Al Murray has loved playing the figure behind the bar. His alter ego on stages, a head-shaved, over-opinionated blowhard he calls the pub landlord. We're sensible people in this country, don't we? Down-to-earth people. Yeah, yeah, we never put man on the moon. Nah. No, the moon was never going to be part of the British Empire, was it, by chance? <laughs> no, no, there's no one to give it back to once we're done with it, was it? <laughs> so what, what is it about that archetype? He's a know-all who knows nothing. It's, it's a guy who uh, has power but no authority. It's a guy who is, is writing intellectual checks he can't possibly cash. Was it my, my wide inch deep? It's the whole swirl of what happens in a pub. The publican is the conduit, the confessor, the, the sort of you know, high priest in a space like this. So it all goes through him. It's all good fun, but as his character suggests, pub culture is, if not eroding, undergoing considerable change. For generations, the number of British pubs has been declining, from 65,000 to fewer than 50,000 in the last 25 years. The causes of death are many. High beer duty, a smoking ban, cheap supermarket lager, people drinking less. Perhaps the biggest culprits? Venture capitalists and developers more interested in a pub's real estate than what's on tap. And then in March 2020 came the hammer blow, COVID-19. 
What was it like when this closed for the first time? So destroying, uh, I mean, in business terms, uh, lethal. I still haven't got any words for it, John. It, 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 we have a passion to open the door every single day. This, this wasn't just change the sign on the door. This sounds almost existential. It's terminal for a lot of pubs. Even in the worst of times, the Napoleonic Wars, the Spanish flu, pubs did not close. Despite the bombings in the Blitz, Churchill insisted that pubs remain open. How bad can things be if we can still pull a pint? But this is just a little story to show that the spirit of the pubs is excellent. The house is bombed, they carry on outside. The lockdown gave Britain a glimpse of a future without pubs. For months, the cobbled streets where Dickens once walked, silent. The taverns where Chaucer or Shakespeare might have drunk, empty. Millions of barrels of beer literally down the drain. What does this country stand to lose if pubs diminish? Well, part of its identity is we celebrate our nationality in a very quiet way, in a, in a very modest way. And the pub is a perfect example of that. We're, we're proud of the pub. And if it was taken away from us, I think we'd lose something of what defines us as a nation. It's not flag-waving jingoism, but, but coming in here is sort of an, an act yeah. of patriotism, you're saying. It's just coming in and just going, yeah, I'll have another pint, thank you. Coming out of lockdown, the pint-wielding patriots believed more than ever that the pub is an institution worth saving. Saving the traditional pub, is that... Nostalgia for a, a Britain that may no longer exist? Oh, there are so many Britons that may no longer exist, but the, the one that's worth saving is the pub, surely. I mean, you know, we don't need a navy anymore, do we? We need pubs. <laughs> in a changing Britain, nostalgia can reside at the bottom of a glass. In the oh-so-English village of Aldworth in Berkshire, you'll find just a cricket green, a church, a few houses, and a pub resistant to time. The Bell Inn has been in the family of Heather Macaulay for 200 years. She was born in the pub, and now, at age 85, runs it with her son, Hugh. How many generations in, in these 200 years? We go, there's a, James and Hugh and Thomas and Ronald, and then me, five, I suppose. We've talked to some pub owners who've said they've, they felt this pressure to evolve and they're trying gourmet food and DJs and yeah. technology. Here, no. We are plain, simple. That's how we survive. That's how we're going to survive. I don't think we'll ever be putting TVs in here somehow. Oh, no, no. no. Well, I don't even have a mobile phone. Pubs like the Bell Inns and the Old Stars have done what they've always done, served their communities. But where does the rest of the country fit in? Nigerian-born Clement Ogbenaya is proud owner of the Prince of Peckham in South London. He has taken the magic of the pub and adapted it to multicultural 21st century Britain. You hear the word pub 20 years ago, what are you thinking? I'm thinking I'm not going there. So play that out for me. You walk into a conventional pub and what happens? Think of Clint Eastwood in a Western movie. It's like everyone looks at the door swinging. Who's that guy? That's how, that's how I felt in some pubs I walked the in. Piano stops playing. Absolutely, absolutely. Four years ago, Clement bought up a neighborhood joint. 
destined to be turned into an apartment block or a mini market. Pubs play a massive part in representing the communities, representing the underrepresented, the marginalized, and giving them a space, giving them somewhere where they can actually be, they can congregate, they can share ideas. When kids today hear the word pub, what, what do you want them to think? I want them to think that's, that's a space for me. That's a space where I can be. That's a space where I can celebrate. That's a space where I can hang out, I can laugh, I can mourn. That's what you're going for when you open this place. Yeah, I just, I, I just love seeing the melting pot that is London reflected in this pub. And herein might lie the key to the pub survival. Cater to an evolving and ever-changing Britain, and beer and good cheer might well flow in equal measure. Those pints, after all, aren't going to drink themselves. Tonight, we want to introduce you to a musician, Sona Jabarte, who introduced us to the beautiful sound and story of a centuries-old instrument, the kora. It's a stringed instrument from West Africa, part of a musical tradition that dates back to a 13th century empire and has been passed down strictly from father to son, man to man, and a special set of families ever since. As Leslie Stahl reported this fall, Sona Jabarte was born into one of those families, called Griots, the daughter of a Gambian father and a British mother. After hundreds of years of men, she is the first woman to master the Kora. In her performances around the world, and in her work offstage, she says she is keeping the tradition alive through the very act of breaking it. Take a listen, as we did, to Sona Jobarte as she plays the Kora. With its 21 strings, played by just four fingers, two on each hand, it has a sound both foreign and familiar. To me, it's like a harp. What do you compare it to? I don't actually compare it to anything because it's normal for me, right? I compare other things to the Kora. <laughs> <laughs> the song Sona played for us, called Yarabi, is a traditional love song. Sung in the Mandinka language. The tradition goes back to the 1200s, when a kingdom called the Mali Empire reigned over a large swath of West Africa, the territory of several modern-day countries. The musicians and storytellers in the empire were men called griots who counseled kings, resolved conflicts, and passed the legends down orally through the centuries. Women in griot families were singers, but it was only men who were allowed to play the instruments. That is until Sona Jobarte. At 39, she has become one of the foremost kora players in the world. Performing with her band across Europe, West Africa, and here in the United States, as we saw in this packed theater outside Boston. Gambia, 
this is music when you hear it it still to this day carries this feeling of the empire at its at its greatest you get that feeling of royalty you get that feeling of you know something that you're so proud about what i think about with you is that you have broken tradition it's not the way i see myself mainly because of the fact of um believing that tradition has to evolve traditions are not stagnant they are things that grow with humanity with society and they always have at one time this instrument was not around and then it became invented and it became something modern and yet now it's considered traditional wow. so in terms of me being female mm. this is a very central and important adaptation the tradition must take in order to be able to be relevant to our new society Sona Jobarte comes to the griot tradition as both insider and outsider. Her mother is a British artist. Her father, the son of a legendary Gambian kora player whose griot family pedigree traces back to the 13th century. Though her parents' relationship didn't last, Sona grew up in both worlds, the UK and her grandfather's family compound in the Gambia where she says her grandmother urged her to embrace her griot heritage which as a girl meant singing she used to keep telling me you know you have to sing and i never wanted to sing i hated singing with a passion why I, you have I, the perfect voice i didn't like it never liked it and but so but your grandmother knew you had a great voice i don't think she heard it much because i refused and i was a very stubborn child when it came to that i would sit there for mm. but sona was drawn to the kora and as a little kid no one seemed to mind her learning some of the basics she thinks her grandmother may have even liked the idea in the uk though she studied a different musical tradition classical cello and she excelled winning a scholarship at age 14 to a prestigious music boarding school were you one of the very few biracial kids in the school the only person of color in the first school the only yes. person i was incredibly shy as a student i never talked that's my own way of surviving those years i would say were you sad was it a yes. tough time it was a very tough time yeah yeah happiness was not a major part of it but she did find one point of connection to her life in the gambia the library in the school had a kora there hanging on the wall so i would be always looking at this thing and then one day i decided to t- to take it off the wall It was a total mess as you can imagine. Um so what I started doing was every time I get a little bit of time where the place is quiet I would take it off the wall, fix a string, put it back, and I was doing it hoping nobody was going to notice I keep taking it off the wall. <laughs> and there was one lady who uh, was one of the late, late night workers. She said, "Why not you take it to your room and you can keep it there and just work on it." She's and your I hero. I had the permission. It became my sanity and her calling. At 17, she decided she needed to study the Kora properly, which meant taking a personal risk, appealing to her father to pass the tradition down to her, his daughter, as his father had to him. They hadn't spent much time together, as Sanjali Jobarte had been living and performing mostly abroad. For years and years and years, Kora playing was mm-hmm. passed father to son. Mm-hmm. Father to son. Exactly. And along comes your daughter, yeah. Sona. Yeah. Did she say, "Dad, will you teach me?" Yes, yeah, she said, "What I really want to learn is the Kora." But girls didn't play the Kora at that point. What I told her, I said, "I would like if I close my eyes, I don't have to know the difference. Is it a man or Oh. If you can do that for me, 
You just immediately said okay? I just immediately said okay. You never hesitated? I never hesitated, no. I don't want you to get distracted with this whole idea of being female. Don't let that get into your head. Don't let it dis distract you. Your ambition needs to be a good chora player, not a female chora player, just a good chora player. And so that was my challenge at the beginning. How hard did she work? She worked very, very hard. She started performing, sometimes with her father and then with her own band. She got acceptance first in Europe. Then back in the Gambia with a song and video she released in 2015 to celebrate 50 years of Gambian independence. It's become the country's unofficial national anthem with more than 24 million views on YouTube. Minus the dancers, we found the Gambia much as Sona's video depicted it. A tiny country on Africa's west coast it's a former British colony that's predominantly Muslim. Pre-colonial culture runs deep here. Sona Jabarti's name and heritage carry weight. And she's leaning into that ancient griot role of cultural leader to advocate for what she calls her purpose in life outside music, creating a new model of African education. She has founded a small school called the Gambia Academy, where students study dance, drumming, kora, of course, and another traditional griot instrument called the balaphone. The music gets the most attention because everyone sees it and likes and enjoys it. But they are learning all the same subjects as any other school is learning, you know, your math, your science, your geography, your history, all these things. However, how is that imparted to you? So continuous cultivation means what? Sona believes most education in Africa has been so deeply rooted in colonial models that its message to children is that their own legacy is somehow backward. So they fail to do things properly. We're going to do it in this way. And this, this way is always very much a European way. My challenge is now, can you get the same output, successful output, if we actually create, change the cultural orientation at the heart and center of the education system. From your elbow to your finger should be straight line, huh? And, and, so the students here wear traditional African uniforms. What the hand, okay, seven, eight. And Gambian culture is celebrated. Rohi and Bori have been coming to the school since it opened seven years ago. Here, there are no restrictions by gender or pedigree. Rohi is learning to play the kora, and Bori is in the advanced balaphone class. I like it. It makes me feel very happy when I'm playing. Are you griot? No. Are you griot? No. And you're female. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you both laughing, because you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Right? Won't that be awfully difficult? You know, what a man can do, a woman also can do it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not from a Giria family, but I love to play Kora. And when you love something, you can do it. Are you getting pushback from within the society? Yes, of course, especially from older generations. Yes. But um, it doesn't matter. 
Sona's first album was a mix of traditional and new songs. Her latest, which we saw her rehearsing with her band, is all original music. She writes all the parts herself, including songs about education, women, and her own identity. And she sings them in Mandinka. For me, when I sing in my own language, when I sing in the language that belongs to the Gambia, there is, I'm giving you a sense of pride that you never have before, that your language is as valuable. When I can go to an international audience, and I can have the whole audience in Germany, Spain, America, all over the world, and they're singing Mandinka. The power, she says, of music. It becomes a universal language. I can talk with anybody from anywhere in the world using music. I can't do that in any other form. she's doing one more thing, passing the tradition down to her 15-year-old son, Siddiqui, a talented balafon player. A next link from the griot past to its future. You had said to her, when I close my eyes, I don't want to hear a female. No. Cora player. Yeah. I want to hear a great Cora player. Yeah. Okay, so close your eyes and tell us what you hear. I hear a great, great, great Cora player. <laughs> I'm very, very proud. Definitely. Thank you so much. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Around the world, last night or this morning, Christians heard the gospel story of the heavenly host appearing to shepherds and singing the promise of peace on earth. That got us wondering about the state of peace on earth. How much peace is there this Christmas night? There's no peace in Ukraine where the world's best-known, most reported war rages on. But Ukraine is just one of some 15 wars, insurgencies, and other actions, each of which has claimed more than 1,000 lives this year, according to the World Population Review. There are civil wars in Myanmar, Afghanistan, Yemen, and Ethiopia. There is an insurgency in Iraq and drug wars in Mexico and Colombia. 
You can find peace on Earth tonight in many places, but for millions of people living in the conflict zones where war rages on, a prayer for peace may be in order. I'm John Wertheim. We'll be back next week with a brand new edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at paramountshop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.